Hello, and welcome to the Netflix Q4 2023 earnings interview. I'm Spencer Wong, VP of Finance, IR, and Corporate Development. Joining me today are co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters and CFO Spence Newman. We do have a few changes to our interview format this quarter. First, uh, we are live streaming this over YouTube, so hopefully it's working. I guess we'll find out shortly enough. Uh, second, we've collected questions from the analyst community, and I'll be reading those questions and moderating the interviewer. Uh, in the interview. As a reminder, we'll be making forward-looking statements and actual results may vary. With that, let's dive first into uh, the first set of questions, which is about our new partnership with WWE that we announced uh, this morning. Uh, for Ted, uh, the first question comes from Dan Salmon. Uh, can you uh, please expand on the decision to acquire WWE raw rights? Is the WWE audience one that is uh, underpenetrated uh, for Netflix today? And can you expand on the economics or the cost of the deal, please? Thanks, Dan. I, I, if I could raise a single eyebrow one at a time, I would lean into the camera with the single eyebrow and do my best, Wayne. But I'm going to say instead that we are thrilled uh, to bring this WWE live programming to our members around the world. Uh, WWE Raw is sports entertainment, which is right in the sweet spot of our sports business, which is the drama of sport. Uh, think of this is uh, 52 weeks a lot of live programming every week, every year. Uh, it feeds our desire to expand our live event programming. Uh, and, but most importantly, fans love it. Um, for decades, the WWE has you know, grown this multi-generational fan base that we believe we could serve and we can grow. Uh, we believe the WWE has been uh, historically underdistributed outside of North America. Uh, and this is a global deal, so we can help them and they can help us build that fandom around the world. Uh, and, you know, not to, we should, I should add that this uh, should also add some fuel to our new and growing ad business. We're very excited about this deal. And Ted, did you want to comment on the economics or the cost of the deal? No, you know, our, we don't comment uh, on the economics of any of our deals. Uh, I would just say this is a, a long-term deal that uh, we're really happy to be in with the WWE. Great. Our next question uh, comes from Rich Greenfield of Lightshed. Uh, Rich first wants me to say a uh, great quarter. Uh, yes, of course he all. does. Uh, and uh, his question is, um, uh, should we think about uh, the WWE deal as fitting into your existing uh, plans to spend roughly $17 billion a year on programming? Or is this expansion into live going to drive overall spending higher? And lastly, could you talk about the opportunities to create shoulder programming uh, around WWE similar to Drive to Survive? Well, you know, expanding into live event programming is something we've talked about for quite a while, and this has been in the works. So you should look at this as fits inside of our $17 billion programming spend now. Um, so, um, and in terms of, of building on it, uh, you should think about Formula One as uh, like, this is almost the inverse of Formula One, which is uh, a very big and passionate U.S. fan base uh, and a lot of room to grow outside of the U.S. And we could build that um, as we have with Formula One. Uh, and other sports, like through our shoulder programming, like Drive to Survive, like Full Swing, like Breakpoint, like Quarterbacks, like Tour de France. Uh, and now with this great storytelling, with the events itself are the storytelling of the WWE. So this is a proven formula for us that we're excited to jump into. Uh, you know, this is um, uh, sports entertainment, very close to our core. Uh, the deal's long term. We're super excited about it. Great. And um, the WWE partnership has spurred a lot of questions uh, around uh, our broader approach uh, to sports, including uh, quite a question from uh, Ben Swinburne, but I'll read Michael Nathanson's question yeah. since uh, he got it in first. So, Ted, given the news today, is it safe to presume that you will now be interested in similar types of global sports rights like the NBA or UFC? 
uh, why is the WWE more attractive than those rights? So uh, unique to those other opportunities, WWE is sports entertainment. So it's really the, as close to our core as you can get of that sports storytelling. Uh, so and, and in terms of the deal itself, um, it has options and it has the, protect, the protections that we seek in our general licensing deals and with economics that we're super happy with globally. So I would not look at this as a, a signal of any other change or any change to our sports strategy. Great. Thank you, Ted. I'll move us along now to a series of questions uh, regarding our result in the forecast. Uh, first, uh, coming from Mark Mahaney of Evercore. Um, uh, how, uh, and this is for Spence. Uh, how should we think about arm growth going forward? Is mid-single-digit percentage increase a reasonable benchmark? And what are the factors that could create either upside or downside to that growth outlook? Sure, sure. Thanks, Mark. So, well, first, uh, you know, stepping back, 2023, as a reminder, was a pretty unusual year for us. It was essentially all member-driven growth because our pricing and plans focus in 23 was on rolling out page sharing. We had almost no price increases until, until late in the year in 23, and even then it was just a partial quarter impact. Uh, as we look to 24, as we noted in the letter for 2024, we expect healthy double-digit FX neutral revenue growth, including growth in FX neutral arm. So we expect continued member growth powered by a great slate, including the full year impact of our uh, 2023 net ads carrying into 24. And no change to our pricing philosophy. You saw some of that pricing action already in the past quarter. And, you know, we should get some help from extra members and starting to scale our ads business. But as we said, ads won't be a primary driver in 24. So when we look beyond in, in general over kind of multiple years, 24 and beyond, we're focused on continually improving our service. If we do that well, we'll have more members, we'll have more value that we can occasionally price into, and lots of engagement to build a big and profitable ads business. So healthy revenue growth with a mixture of volume and, and arm, that's really the output. And you know, I'll probably disappoint because I'm not going to provide a specific guide on, on arm because we managed overall revenue growth. But we want ARM to be a component of that growth. It's just that it could move up or down based on things in any given year, like FX, like the pace at which we're scaling our ads reach and some lag that could happen in terms of monetizing that reach and just generally our pricing and plan strategy more broadly in a given year. Thanks, Spence. Uh, our next question is from Steve Cahall from Wells Fargo for Greg. Uh, the question is, once a subscriber and ARM benefits from paid sharing begin to diminish in 2024, what do you think are the biggest incremental opportunities to continue to drive uh, subscriber and revenue growth? What types of additional content or additional member benefits uh, provide the best ROI to help sustain healthy revenue growth? Well, we're excited to be at the point where we've operationalized that paid sharing product work. So it's integrated in everything we do, and we're iterating and improving on it just like we would any other significant part of our product experience. Uh, so we think of this essentially as having built a more effective engine for translating the entertainment value that we're creating for our members into revenue. But I think it's critical to understand that that engine works on top of, and we see it working on top of, very healthy organic growth. You can see it in things like better than forecasted churn. We see better than uh, expected impacts from the recent price changes we did. And that's a, that's the model, essentially, right? If we can continue to improve our core offering, that means more diversity and more quality from our members' perspective and our films and series. Now adding the live events programming to add even more value, continue to grow games and the entertainment value that we're delivering through those. Then our paid sharing work and our ads work creates a more effective engine to translate all that value into revenue growth. 
and will support increased conversion of our addressable market in many years to come. Thanks, Greg. Uh, the next question is from Doug Enwith from uh, JP Morgan, and I'll direct this one to Spence. Uh, the 13 uh, million plus paid net ads in Q4 was uh, strong overall and across all regions, but EMEA seemed to drive particular upside. Is there anything specific to point out uh, there? Uh, perhaps the ad tier or specific content or localized pricing, perhaps? Uh, yeah, so thanks. Well, actually, EMEA is a, a sort of a perfect example of a little bit of what, what Greg was just talking about. So first, it, it starts with great slate performance, a great content performance. We had a really strong slate across EMEA from the crown finale in the UK to in France. We had Blood Coast and Lupin and Class Act. We had Berlin, Elite and Nowhere and Spain and in Poland, 1670, and, and much more, frankly. So it starts with that strong slate. And then if I channel uh, uh, Greg's uh, last answer, that kind of better value tran translation engine, if you will, which drives even more growth uh, through our paid sharing solutions and our monetization engine. So that helped as well. Um, so it really all came together in EMEA this past quarter. And I'll say, um, very importantly, it's not just net ads. It's, you know, again, our, our, our primary focus is on revenue growth. We had very strong revenue growth as a result of that in EMEA this past quarter, 13% FX neutral growth in Q4. Uh, thanks, Spence. Uh, Doug also has a uh, follow-up question uh, around paid sharing, which I will uh, direct to uh, Greg. Uh, how far along are you in terms of uh, the paid sharing benefits? Do you still um, believe paid sharing will add um, subscribers for several more quarters? And is there any way to quantify what percentage of the 100 million borrower uh, household population uh, have either become extra members or full paying subscribers? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, we've gotten to the point where paid sharing, the paid sharing product experience is just something we do at this point. Um, but also, I think it's important to say that, like many other things that we do, we also see a real opportunity to continue to materially improve, you know, that value translation engine. So, we definitely delivered interventions to new cohorts in the last quarter. Um, we're going to continue to deliver new to new cohorts in 2024. But increasingly, I sort of don't think about it as like, um, you know, going after these certain pools, but more about just finding the most effective way to convert folks who are using the service, the right call to action, the right nudge at the right time. And those might have been historical borrowers or you know folks that are new to the service as well. And we're going to continue to improve that engine. Uh, that will continue to improve our growth for years ahead, not just um, 2024. Great. I'll now transition us to uh, a series of questions around advertising. Uh, for Greg, uh, Dan Salmon from New Street Research, uh, his question is, uh, what are some of your most important milestones uh, for the advertising business in 2024? Do you have a target level of MAUs or ad member households? What sorts of improvements to uh, ad tech or measurement are you seeking? And perhaps any new uh, country launches for your ads plan? Yeah, our, our top ads priority, you've heard us say it before, I think you'll hear us say it again, is scale. Uh, we saw 70% quarter of quarter growth last quarter. Uh, that's after 70% quarter of quarter for the quarter before, and then 100% the quarter before that. So that's a good trajectory to be on. We're now at 23 million MAUs, um, and we see that continuing to grow uh, in the quarters ahead. Now, as to your point about, you know, what's the target? Every market's different. There's not a magic MAU number, uh, but I think it's fair to say that we've still got plenty of room to grow in all the markets that we operate in. Uh, and we're focused on the additional work that we can do in that space. That means making the ads plan more attractive. You know, we've added streams, higher resolution, downloads. It means engaging partner channels. You'll see us do more of that. 
shifting our plans and pricing structure in other places where we think it's uh, appropriate. So all that works ahead of us. We, we know we can do tremendous uh, amounts in that space, and we're going to go do it over the next quarters. Second priority, you mentioned this, which is really, you know, growing the technical advertising features um, and growing our go-to-market capabilities. And these are features like targeting, um, improved ad relevance. That's good for members. It's good for brands. Uh, we've got tons to do on improved measurement. We want to launch more ads products. We've got uh, binge ad sponsorships uh, now. And, you know, we have to build increasingly the capability to be better partners with advertisers and serve their needs. So this is, you know, better sales teams, um, ad operations, and just more capability to meet brands where they, uh, where they need us and how they need us. So we're focused on the long-term revenue uh, potential here. We're very optimistic about it. Uh, it's a huge opportunity, 180 billion of ad spend ex China and Russia, 25 billion alone on connected TV. We know ad dollars follow engagement. We've got the most engaged audience, so we believe we're well positioned to capture some of that ad spend that shifts from linear to streaming. Great, and Greg, um, any thoughts uh, to Dan's uh, question around launching uh, an ads plan in uh, other countries in addition to the 12 countries we're in today? Thanks for uh, reminding me on that one. I would say we got a ton of work ahead of us on uh, just getting to you know, the level of maturity and um, impact to the business from the countries that we're operating in today. Um, I would say, you know, never say never on expanding beyond that, but it's worth noting that the um, the countries that we are currently operating in represent about 80% of global ad spend. So we're already, um, you know, working in the spaces where there's the majority of opportunity. You know, we'll see in the fullness of time, but we'd say, I'd say we got years uh, of work ahead of us to take the ads business to the point where it's a material uh, impactor to our general business. Thank you, Greg. Um, from Steve Cahall from Wells Fargo, um, how do you think about the efficacy of continuing uh, to use uh, a third-party relationship for ad sales uh, versus the opportunity to invest in your own ad tech and ad sales infrastructure? Do you have a sense uh, of what kind of investment would be required uh, to transact more directly with uh, uh, advertisers? Yeah, and just to clarify, we are already um, in partnership with Microsoft developing part of the technology that supports our ads experience. So they've got a large team working on some of those features that I just mentioned, but we've got a you know smaller but growing team working on the areas where we can differentially contribute to. And then similarly on the ad sales and the go-to-market side of things, we're building out our own teams that cover uh, a portion of the sales and operations activities. So I think you you know asked in terms of what's the size of investment you know we have plans um, to continue to grow those teams so those are both growing at a pretty uh, strong clip and growing that investment but we've modeled out where you know what we think we need and even with those investment levels and the growth that we expect that we see we expect the margins on the ad business to remain very high. Great. Thanks, Greg. Um, a question from Rich Greenfield on advertising. Uh, later this week, uh, T-Mobile's uh, subscriber benefit called Netflix on Us will convert uh, to Netflix's ad tier unless uh, subscribers uh, upgrade to uh, an ad-free tier. Is it reasonable to assume that your U.S. ad-supported subscriber base will roughly double uh, as a result of this change? And, and assuming it is, how, how quickly uh, will you be able to fill that uh, inventory? Yeah, I won't get into the specifics of a particular deal or provide a forecast for a particular deal, but I'll just say that, you know, just as we've done um, for many, many years, um, leveraging partner channels is an important part of our subscriber growth strategy. We're applying the same techniques and approaches to scaling our ads membership. And, and we love having this uh, additional tool. It's very effective. 
um, very useful for us because that lower consumer facing price means that we got room now to bundle the ads plan into a you know set of lower priced partner offerings where it was hard to make the economics work for everyone previously. So it opens up a whole new range of opportunities. It's great for new members as well uh, who are leveraging those bundles. They get a better plan than basic, more streams, higher resolution with downloads. And of course, you know, the real benefit is they get access to all this amazing uh, stories at a lower effective price through the bundle. So, you know, we really think of this as a um, win, win, win. And we're going to continue to leverage uh, these bundles going forward. And I think Rich asked, um, you know, how we think about quickly, how quickly we fill uh, the supply. You know, I mean, when you're building, uh, you know, growing as fast as we're growing right now, it creates a lot of challenges you might expect to then fill behind that. Um, but I'd much rather be in that position where we're growing that inventory and then racing behind to fill it and improve our monetization than the reverse. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have that challenge. Super. I'll now move us along to uh, a series of questions uh, related to content. So, um, Ted, uh, from Jason Helfstein of Oppenheimer, uh, are you shifting the mix of uh, your content spend uh, to more licensed second-run content? And if so, how should we think about uh, this mix impacting uh, Netflix's operating margins? Uh, so, you know, we've always uh, had a healthy appetite for licensing content from others for our members. Uh, I don't see any meaningful change in that mix. And, you know, the current margin outlook contemplates that healthy mix between originals uh, and licensed titles. Uh, you know, we, it might be that we can deliver more on our programming spend with some licensed titles, uh, but we also believe that we deliver an incredible amount of value, excitement, and differentiation with our original series. Uh, you know, remember our original series made up the the number made were the number one most watched original 48 of 52 weeks last year. Uh, so we really don't have any plans to move away from those investments. Right. Um, and uh, another question for you, Ted, uh, from Rich um, on content. Uh, while Netflix data clearly shows that new original movies outperform licensed titles in terms of uh, viewers and view hours, it doesn't appear that uh, new movies, those new movies are having the same cultural impact uh, that TV series uh, have. Um, do the recent management uh, departures or their willingness of uh, Hollywood studios to license post-theatrical movies to Netflix signal any sort of meaningful shift in our film strategy towards licensing away from original production? Yeah, no, uh, look at our original movies are attracting some of the biggest audiences in the world. Uh, look at uh, Leave the World Behind in Q4. Uh, look at all those crazy memes about the creepy deers that were all over the place when that movie came out. Uh, or look at Society of the Snow from Spain right now, which uh, this morning was nominated for two Oscars. Um, or even look back last year, uh, Jennifer Lopez's great movie, The, the Mother. Uh, by some accounts, it was the most watched movie in the world last year. So um, I think about it that fans really don't care much about budgets and windows. They just want a movie that they love. They want a movie to make them cry or make them laugh or give them something great to talk about over dinner. Um, uh, as you point out, our original films do outperform those licensed films. Uh, and they do uniquely distinguish us from the competition. Uh, just this morning, our original films got 18 Oscar nominations across 10 different films. So um, we do not plan to change our, our strategy uh, or the mix. Um, it's always going to be that kind of blend of first window, second window, and deep catalog. We think that formula works best to entertain the world. Great. And as a follow-up to that question around licensing, Ted, uh, your competitors uh, have largely abandoned their 
opposition to licensing catalog content to Netflix. Uh, we've seen, uh, for example, NBC, uh, NBC Suits, HBO's uh, Six Feet Under, and more recently, a series of uh, Disney TV uh, titles on Netflix. Uh, do you think your competitors should begin licensing you their new original series as well uh, versus keeping them exclusively to their own uh, streaming services? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd call you back to that history again and just say, you know, we've got a, a rich history of of helping break some of TV's biggest hits like Breaking Bad and Walking Dead uh, or even more recently with Schitt's Creek. Uh, because of our recommendation, and our reach, um, we can resurrect the show like Suits and turn it into a big pop culture minute uh, moment, but also generate billions of hours of joy for our members. So uh, I, I think you have to remember the studios have always been in the business of selling their content to others, including direct competitors for years. Uh, I, I believe because, again, of our, our distribution heft and our recommendation system, that sometimes we can uniquely add more value to, uh, to the studio's IP than they can. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes it does, and, we've, and we're the best buyer for it. So I am thrilled that the studios are more open to licensing again, and I'm thrilled to tell them that we are open for business. Great. And uh, a question on anim uh, animation and animated features uh, from Rich uh, Greenfield as well uh, for Ted is uh, Leo, uh, Netflix's most successful animated uh, film to date. Um, it's been heavily watched based on our uh, top 10 data. Uh, is there any color you can provide on repeat viewing in the film? And why has this animated feature film uh, resonated uh, uh, versus other Netflix uh, animated feature films? I think Leo has resonated for the same reason that CBS did last year. It's a, it was it's great. People really love it. It brings a lot of joy to to families. Uh, and yes, they do watch them over and over again, which drives a lot of engagement, uh, but also drives a lot of attachment. Um, I, I think that Leo and and CBS are proof points uh, that we have the the flywheel to create original IP in that animated space. And there is so much appetite for animated feature. You know, seven of the top 10 most watched movies since Nielsen's been tracking streaming are animated features. So I'm I'm super thrilled with Leo. Uh, we're kicking around Leo 2 right now. And uh, it's, real, it's a, a, a film that works on so many levels. The animation, the art of the animation is beautiful. The comedy is funny uh, and families just really love it. So we, we look forward to a lot more um uh, we have spellbound coming up next year we're we're just really thrilled with our the the that the animation team is now you know firing on all cylinders uh moving along to engagement uh this question is from brian Kraft of uh, deutsche bank and i'll uh, direct this one to ted uh what have the engagement trends been like globally and domestically has it been steady increasing or decreasing uh and how has uh, paid sharing impacted engagement uh, per member yeah, so we're we're really thrilled with our engagement trends domestically and globally. Um, this is really a story about uh, viewing moving from linear television to streaming. And uh, the story has been constant and it continues. It's also a story about Netflix kind of leading the way with professional film and television and now games. Um, uh, the, our engagement is a, a bit impacted by our paid sharing. Think about it like um, fewer households using the same account. Uh, so as those folks spin off and get their own accounts and we win them over with our programming, uh, that will normalize and continue to grow. Um, you know, we, we're really pleased with, pleased with our engagement. We have shown you in graphic detail uh, what that engagement looks like on a title-by-title -title basis in this engagement report we just released. And I think you see in that report, uh, you know, about two hours of, uh, of daily engagement with our members, which is great. Uh, and you see that some of our, our, our hits and even our near hits are attracting enormous audiences. So 
Uh, we have to keep pleasing them, and we have to do that in multiple languages, in multiple countries, and all over the world. And uh, and uh, that's what we're up, that's what we're excited about, and it's showing up in that engagement. Great. Let's move on to uh, gaming. Um, a couple questions on gaming. Uh, first, from Justin Patterson at uh, KeyBank uh, for Greg. Uh, the gaming portfolio expanded significantly last year uh, uh, and even added some more mainstream titles like Grand Theft Auto uh, Trilogy. Uh, how are you thinking about sizing the investment in this area? How has engagement changed uh, over the past year? And what are the signals you're evaluating to gauge when it's time to uh, monetize? Yeah, well, we're stoked by the performance of uh, GTA. We had high hopes, but uh, it exceeded even those high hopes. So that's a it's a great place to be. So the biggest download and engagement numbers that we've seen so far, uh, we were in the top mobile game downloads for several weeks, which shows it was not only big for us, but big numbers for mobile gaming in general. Um, and you know, beyond any specific title, we've tripled game engagement over the last year. So that's a solid growth trajectory for us. Games, you know, it's a huge opportunity, 140 billion in consumer spend, ex uh, China and Russia. And we believe we can build games as a strong component, another content category to deliver entertainment value to our subscribers. Um, but to your question on size of investment, you know, we thought about this as we've got to allocate enough to the initiative to ensure that we're playing to win, that we have enough activity in the space that we're learning and growing but also recognizing that we had a tremendous amount to learn and a tremendous uh, set of institutional capabilities to develop. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't growing that investment significantly before proving to ourselves that we can actually effectively translate that investment into member value. So things are going well if we continue to see this level of engagement growth and we continue to see what we've been seeing so far, which is evidence um, as we would expect um, that that engagement leads to business benefits like increased retention. Then we'll be able to scale that investment appropriately. Um, having said all of that, you know, it's still, I'll use the early days words that we love to use. Uh, and it's worth noting that our games investment is very small fraction of our overall content budget right now. Great. Um, Greg, a uh, second question uh, on gaming uh, from Michael Pachter of Wedbush. Um, he asked, given the outperformance of uh, Grand Theft uh, Auto Trilogy on the Netflix service, uh, will you reconsider uh, your focus on games available exclusively on the service, um, asking if you will seek to uh, emulate the success of Grand Theft Auto by offering games like Candy Crush or Fortnite on Netflix as well? Yes, uh, licensing games, you know, existing games with often with some form of exclusivity, it's been a key part of our strategy and it's going to continue to be so. You know, we've clearly seen one of the things that we've learned is that recognizable games, that's either existing popular game titles or, or you know, game franchises or games that are based on well-known IP. And in many cases, that's IP from our own films and series. Those are the ones that are working the best for us right now. So we're going to continue to find the right opportunities to bring those kind of titles to our members. We're going to look for more um, great licensing and, you know, some exclusive licensing um, so we can do things more like what you've seen us do last quarter with uh, GTA, but also other titles like Football Manager 2024, which performed very well for us, Money Heist or Casa de Papel, which was great. You'll see it this quarter with titles like Virgin River. So that's definitely um, the, the strategy that we're on, and you'll see us do more of that work. Great. Uh, we have a question also from uh, John Hulick of UBS. Um, this one I'll point to um, uh, uh, Greg, but Spence, you can feel uh, free to join in as well. Uh, the question is, how should we think about pricing changes in the rest of the world now that you are through the majority of 
the password sharing implementation and in light of the recent uh, uh, price adjustments in the US, UK, and uh, France. Yeah, as we had talked about previously, we largely put price increases on hold while we were rolling out the paid sharing work because we saw that as a, a form of substitute price increase. Now uh, that we're through that, we're able to resume our sort of standard approach towards uh, price increases. Price increases. You've seen us do that in the U.S., U.K., and France. Those changes went well, better than we we forecasted, and we will continue to then monitor other countries and try and assess. You know, when we've delivered enough additional entertainment value, we look at engagement, retention, acquisition as the signals there, so that we can go back to members and ask them to pay a bit more to keep that plot positive flywheel going. Um, and we can invest in more great film series and games for those members. So, you know, the summary statement might be back to business as usual. And Spence, I don't know if you wanted to add anything there. I think you nailed it. You're you're on a roll. So it's good. Um, great. I'll, I'll move us along now uh, to a couple questions on uh, competition and the competitive uh, landscape. Uh, the first question comes from Maria Rips of Canaccord uh, Genuity. Uh, with ads coming to Prime Video uh, at the end of this month, and given Amazon is making it the default option uh, for its Prime members, uh, could you talk about how you are positioning Netflix relative to the competition when you're speaking with advertisers? Uh, could you also comment on if Netflix considered making the ad tier the default option similar to Amazon? And what were some of the puts and takes uh, about that decision? Uh, so I'll turn that one over to you, Greg. Yeah, we did consider uh, making it the default option, but given our long history of not having ads, we thought it was better for our members rather than force them into a change and uh, give them ads, but better to attract them to the ads plan for the ones that wanted it based on the benefits, more streams, higher resolution downloads, and, you know, of course, the lower price to be able to access, um, you know, all these incredible stories. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the growth numbers we were seeing previously and the rate of growth we're on. So I think that approach is generally working well for our members and we haven't seen any big backlash as a result, which is, which is positive as well. And then in terms of competitive positioning, probably the most important thing to start with is, you know, the market's big, right? We talked about over 25 billion in CTV ad spend alone. So there's room for multiple players, clearly. And when we think about, you know, how we compete for some of that ad spend, I really think we need to play with it to our strengths. We've got the, an incredibly engaged audience, the most engaged audience who are watching the most culture-defining films, series, and live events. That is an important place for brands to be, and it's something that differentiates us from our competitors. So that's that's the space that we're going to play in. Super. Uh, another question on competition. Uh, this one probably best for Ted and uh, Spence to uh, take. Uh, and it comes from Eric Sheridan from Goldman Sachs. Uh, how does the current competitive landscape for content impact the trajectory of Netflix's own content spending in 2024 and beyond? Is it possible that the company could widen its competitive moat on the same or lower absolute amount of uh, content spent? Yeah, you I think you it's always been a competitive place for the top for the top programming. So and I think that'll continue, uh, and that's really what I think what you're talking about is whether when we when uh, when the top titles come to market when the big packages come and everyone's duking it out for them is going to remain to be pretty competitive. I think that we're reinvesting at a very healthy rate. Uh, we see that in the engagement. We see that in the retention. We see that in the in the subscriber growth. So um, I, I don't think uh, this would be the time to to try to test that. And Spence, I don't know if you think differently, but yeah, I would just say I just to reinforce that. I mean, we've seen the benefits over time of 
continuous improvement, great execution and focus, and kind of gradually building our business and, and doing it really well and thrilling our members. And so you see it like it's, we are increasing our content spend and coming out of the strikes in 23, we're trying to get back up to as much as 17 billion of cash content spend this year. And as we've also said over the last few years, as we uh, uh, kind of reaccelerate our revenue growth, which we're seeing in the business, we hope to sustain that healthy revenue growth grow profit and profit margins over time, and then reinvest a good portion of that back into the business, which means increasing our content spend. So we do plan to do that, but we want to do it in a smart, judicious, responsible way. That, and you know, obviously today's even announcement with WWE is, is, is a case in point. We believe we have room to do that while still staying very disciplined in terms of our overall content spend and our business performance. Yeah, I, I think the perception of over-serving thrilling, thrilling content to our members has served us pretty well. So, yeah. And we've got lots of room to grow, obviously, and so we no just question. want to do it in a disciplined way. No question. Yep. Uh, I, another question from Eric Sheridan uh, from Goldman Sachs. Um, a bigger picture question. Uh, given the scale of audience that has been built by Netflix, how do you think about the potential for new areas uh, to widen your exposure to verticals uh, or formats of media consumption. I may think maybe Eric is referring to short form content yeah. or UGC, things like that. Ted? Like, I, I would kind of call back to something that Greg alluded to earlier. Um, in the areas of business that are in our core, uh, movies, television, and now games, uh, the, uh, that, that business we're, we're getting, we're capturing about 5% of consumer spending. You know, in our most mature markets, we're getting about 10% of TV time. Uh, so in the in our very core business, uh, we still have an enormous room to grow. Uh, so I, when I look at that, it doesn't make me think about you know searching for more uh, inorganic growth in different kinds of programming. There's so much room to grow in this bit of programming that you know we're kind of ho hopefully getting better and better at for our members every day. So there's a lot of adjacent businesses that are not necessarily competitive that are certainly com uh, complementary in some ways. Uh, some of those platforms that you're talking about, maybe in the user-generated space, have turned out to be great marketing tools for our professional content. So um, I, I think we're uh, rightfully focused, I think, on, on the core uh, of, um, of professional storytelling. Great. Um, I'm going to move this over to uh, a few questions around capital allocation. Uh, the first is from Brian Pitts of BMO Capital Markets. Uh, Basically, the question uh, for Spence is, can you help us uh, frame your M&A views over the next 12 months? Um, you know, uh, is there the possibility for mobile gaming, aqua hire, or what other sorts of M&A um, activity would uh, Netflix be interested in? Uh, well, um, uh, thanks, Brian. We're not going to we're not going to speculate on kind of. Uh, potential M&A activity, but as, as, as you know, our historical bias is to build and not buy. Um, we, we try to be very uh, responsible in terms of our capital allocation philosophy. Um, you know, we we hold a, a a modest amount of debt. We're currently holding ten to fifteen billion in gross debt. We fully fund our business and new initiatives. You see that in terms of our investment into into ads, into live, into games, while still growing the business. And you know, we'll look at selective accelerators to that uh, organic growth. We have done that. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not interested in some of the big linear assets that may or may not be available. We also noticed that, uh, noted that in the letter. And so, um, I think that's how you should kind of think about our, um, you know, what's out there, uh, uh, to, to, to go after. 
And staying with you, Spence, uh, another question on capital allocation, this one coming from Alan Gould of uh, Loop Capital. Um, uh, we know your general rule of thumb is to have cash equal to two months of revenue. Uh, how big of a factor is the current stock price in your buyback activity? And some of your debt begins maturing over the next few years. What do you believe is the optimal leverage ratio to maximize shareholder value? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm glad you asked because I missed the last piece of our capital allocation philosophy, which is to hold about two months of, uh, of, of revenue in the form of cash on the balance sheet and then to return the excess uh, cash to shareholders over time. Uh, we've done that in the form of, of, of buyback. Um, and so, you know, with a little over kind of 7 billion of cash on the balance sheet at the end of the year and with, as you say, the kind of the um, the our expectation for strong cash flow build in the year, roughly six billion, is what we're projecting at current FX rates for 2024. You can expect that we'll continue to return excess cash to shareholders through the buyback. We don't try to time the uh, kind of stock price, so you know we really are kind of more in a we call it more of a price averaging sort of a, approach, and that we buy back over time as we have excess cash. Um, and then in terms of optimal leverage ratio, look where we. We uh, are fortunate to have continued to strengthen our balance sheet. We had a recent upgrade from Moody's in, in Q4. Uh, we continue to grow into that investment grade balance sheet, but we were pretty intentionally under leveraged. Frankly, we think uh, the the optimal, um, without getting overly specific, we think our you know essentially as I said, our capital allocation strategy has served us well, and that philosophy has served us well over the past handful of years. And we think that flexibility in the balance sheet also serves us well to adapt to a quite dynamic industry. Uh, great. Uh, I think we'll wrap up with um, one uh, final question. Uh, it's actually uh, one question we've gotten from uh, several uh, different analysts. And in the spirit of WWE, probably a good one for Ted and uh, Greg to tag team on. Uh, the question is, uh, what are your key uh, 2024 priorities? Uh, maybe Greg, uh, first to you. Sure. Uh, you, you, I think you've heard us uh, you know, express this multiple times this call, um, but we just we, we see so much potential and so much opportunity ahead of us in our core business. We got hundreds of millions of qualified households out there that have still yet to sign up for Netflix. I can't believe it, but they're there and we've got to win them over. There's many hours, like billions of hours of TV time that we are not currently winning. Growing along those two dimensions, more households and more moments of truth, we call them more entertainment value delivered, is a, the key priority for us. We want to improve our entertainment offering to do that. That means delivering more stories that our members love, films, series, games, now live events. That's the key to that success. And then on top of that, we're focusing on improving how we translate all that additional entertainment value into revenue and improved operating margin. That means growing our ads business. It means growing, you know, general plans and pricing optimization. That's the major area of work there. So that's what we're going to be focused on for 2024, and we're super excited to do it. So with that, I'm going to I'll tag team to my partner, co-CEO. So we'll do that instead of a sleeper hold. <laughs> Look, I think everything you said is 100%, Greg, and I think it all is built on the foundation of movies and 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 TV series and games that people love, can't live without talk about, can't wait to get back to, post about, uh, that drives the conversation, that dri drives this love for programming and entertainment. So we're going to start with that with next week, uh, Griselda, a brand new show from the makers of Narcos starring Sofia Vergara. That's insane. It's so good. Uh, following the success of One Piece, we've got a 
brand new Avatar, The Last Airbender coming for fans. Uh, we've got The Three Body Problem you know, based on the, one of the top selling science fiction books of all time uh, from the creators of uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, we have a new show from the UK from Guy Ritchie called The Gentleman that's insanely fun. Uh, and we're back with returning seasons of Bridgerton, of Emily in Paris, of Diplomat, of Squid Game. Uh, and on top of that, great movies like uh, the second part of Rebel Moon coming up, uh, da uh, Damsel with uh, Millie Bobby Brown, Jennifer Lopez's new film Atlas, Hitman, which drove everybody crazy at Sundance last night, uh, and uh, Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop for Axel Foley, and so much more. It's just, it's so fun, and this is a never-ending mission to continue to improve this for our members and make sure that we're bringing them all the joy that we can. And I want to thank all the teams at Netflix who have made that possible in, in 2023 and will in 2024. So I'm very excited, and I'll throw it back to you, Spencer. Awesome. Thank you uh, so much, Ted. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Spence, uh, for entering the questions from analysts. Um, I also want to thank uh, our audience for uh, tuning in to our first ever uh, live streamed uh, video format. We look forward to your feedback. And in the spirit of uh, continuous improvement at Netflix on everything, uh, we look forward to getting better at this uh, over time. So thank you all again, and uh, we'll see you uh, next quarter.